uh, if, it was, if it was up to us um, and not God, we would not preach this passage. This is a passage, I think, in our own flesh, we would want to avoid for several reasons. First of all, it mentions a sin that is shocking that we would rather not talk about. It's the sin of incest here. We also want to avoid this passage because, you know, this passage talks about the consequences of sin for believers. We get the sin for unbelievers, but in the church there's consequences for those who sin. And also it talks about church discipline and removing someone from membership, and we would rather talk about belonging and loving and toleration and just kind of skip this passage. Uh, But we do something here that we call expositional preaching. It's a big word. What it means is that we work our way through books and let the Bible expose itself to us, that we don't come into it saying, what do I want to talk about today? We say, what does the Bible want to talk about today? And we come to that. And we preach what we call the whole counsel of the Word of God. So we're going to let the entire Bible be part of our diet here at CVBC. So that includes even tough stuff like this. And at some point, we're going to have to preach the Song of Solomon. Not soon. (laughs) But we will. Okay, all words in the Bible are the Word of God and are for us and are useful for our teaching, our instruction, and are necessary for our sanctification. So 1 Corinthians is 5, it's uncomfortable, especially if this is your first Sunday here, we're so glad you are here today, but this is the word of the Lord, so we're going to preach it. I want to begin by by giving you a main point of what these 13 verses are telling us. What's the main point of this passage? And here it is, the people of God are a holy people, so sin should be taken seriously in the church. It's the overall big idea. We're going to work through a lot of the little parts here, okay? But the people of God are a holy people, so sin should be taken seriously. Paul wants us to see how damaging and ugly sin is in the life of a body. In a moment, we're going to look at that seriousness, but I first want us to look at the very middle of this passage in verses 6 to 8. In these verses, Paul says, Here's who you are as a church. He reminds them of their identity. If we as a church don't see who we are in Jesus, sin is never going to look that bad to us. But if we rightly see who we are in Jesus, then we can actually see properly, kind of the eyes of our heart get adjusted, and we realize, oh yeah, I'm holy in Jesus, so I'm going to avoid this stuff. So let's look again at 6 to 8. I'm going to explain this, and we're going to get a little bit deep here in the Old Testament. Verses 6 to 8, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Say that five times fast, okay? (laughs) Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's past, it's done. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. At first blush, this is kind of a weird paragraph to be in the midst of a New Testament passage. He calls the church, you're talking about them bread and leaven, he calls the church a new lump. It's not really the most attractive branding title for the church. But Paul here is referencing Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. Old Testament text. You can read about it later, but Israel is enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh is not letting them go. 
Pharaoh's saying no to God, no to Moses. Egypt is the enemy. They're full of sin, full of pagan gods. And there's Israel, God's people, enslaved there. So God's going to intervene, and he begins to give all these plagues to wake up Egypt and Pharaoh to judge them and condemn them for their sin and them enslaving the people of Israel. And the final plague is what we call the plague of death. He brings a plague of death over Egypt for their sin, for their stubbornness. And he commands his people, Israel, says the way that you will be rescued from this plague of death, from this curse, is that you will sacrifice an animal to God and you will essentially paint the blood of the animal on your house's doorpost to say, this house belongs to God. They sacrifice an animal, they kill it, put the blood on the doorpost. So when that punishment, that plague of death passes over, it doesn't stop on Israel's house. It passes over. Thus, it's called the Passover. So because Israel sacrificed an animal, God overlooked the sin of Israel and only cursed the sin of Egypt. So after that rescue happens, God commands the nation, says every year, essentially an anniversary, we're going to have a festival, a feast to remember the way that I saved you from Egypt. And the way that they celebrate this Passover every year is by eating what we call unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is bread that has no yeast. Leavened bread, when that's made, right, it causes, you just kind of set it out for a while, and the bread will rise up. It takes some time. You don't whip this up in 20 minutes. The reason why God said to have unleavened bread is because God was going to so quickly rescue the people from Egypt, they didn't have time to have their bread rise. It's a quick, fast food meal to represent how quickly God saves them. And the leaven... The yeast that you would put in the bread represents Egypt and sin. Okay, it's all symbolic. You can go home and have whatever bread you want, okay? It's all symbolic here. But this is to symbolize that God comes in quickly. He saves the people from the leaven or the yeast of the sin of Egypt. So what happened is as the week approaches to have this anniversary, this festival, remembering what God has done, God said, get rid of all the yeast of your house kind of taking inventory, get rid of the yeast, don't have it in your kitchen, purge yourself of it. And it says if someone left yeast, if they left a jar of yeast in their house during this week of festival, they would be kicked out of the nation for having yeast. Kicked out. You might be wondering, we're not preaching Exodus, so why are we there? But Paul is referencing this text here in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, just how Israel was there in in sin in a foreign nation, you, the church, are in a world full of sin. And you, as the church, were passed over. Because Jesus died and resurrected for you, your sin is not going to kill you. Because Jesus has passed over over your house, and he no longer sees you as full of sin living in Egypt. He sees you as his own people. So the Passover has happened. Do you see that in verse 7? It says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You are already forgiven if you're in Jesus. Your sin does not count against you. The plague of death is not going to take you to hell. You are considered holy and pure and righteous because of Jesus. That's who we are. The Passover lamb has claimed us. And then in verse 8, 
Paul says just how Israel year after year would remember the Passover, would remember the festival, we as the church are to remember our holiness. So he says, don't let any leaven or yeast in our house, the house of the Lord. The yeast and the leaven here represent sin. And he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can't put a little leaven as you're making bread in there and think it's only going to impact one slice of the bread. You put a little leaven in, it's mixed with everything else, and the whole bread gets contaminated with that yeast. Paul is saying, if you don't take sin seriously enough, it's going to come in and contaminate and leaven the whole church that should be unleavened and pure and undefiled. Keep the yeast out. See, if you see, this is the miracle that we are sitting in right now, okay? You and I are depraved, messy, sinful, falling short people, full of unrighteousness and contamination and yeast. And yet because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice that he died and resurrected, he has now passed over our sin and has brought us to become a holy and unleavened people. This is the miracle. We're sitting here in righteousness, in holiness, in purity, despite the fact that we don't deserve it at all. But Jesus alone saves us, and Jesus has caused God's wrath to pass over us. Imagine these Israelites in Egypt, right? God says, okay, if you, if you bring yeast into your home, I'm going to kick you out of the land. You're no longer going to be my people. Like, how careful and serious would you take that? I can picture an Israelite mom, right? The kids come home from school, they're walking, and she's like, hang on. Check your pockets. Do you have any yeast in there? Don't bring any yeast into my house right now. Okay, you might say there's something different for your kids, but we would take it seriously if our home and our safety and our spiritual blessing rested on this little command. So Paul says, if they took it so seriously as a holy people, if you are a holy people in Jesus, why do we let sin creep into our individual lives and creep into our church life? Paul's not saying to stay away from unbelievers. We're going to get to that later. He's talking about us as the church. Why do we let yeast and sin come into our lives? Because we as a church, like the church of Corinth, like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, we are a holy people. In verse 4 here in our text, it says that when we assemble or gather together as a church, we are assembling in the name of Jesus. We are here with Jesus. Jesus is endorsing us being here. Jesus is here with us right now. And how can we be with Jesus here if we are full of this sin and contamination and don't care about it? Can we mix Jesus with all of this sin and him be okay with it? So he's saying we are a holy people. It's done. It's finished. That's who we are. So why are we not living this out? It's a serious passage. So we're going to lean into this a little bit. We have just two points today. Two ways to kind of organize this text. And the first one is this. What sin does to the church? What impact sin has on the church? Right away in verse 1, Paul states that he's heard from others that a terrible sin is going on. 
one of the church members is engaged in sexual immorality, and it's an act of sexual immorality that even the non-Christians, the, the pagans, do not tolerate. And this sin is incest. This man, it appears, is sleeping with his father's wife, most likely his stepmother. And this is widely known in their church so much so that it gets back to Paul. Paul is, is miles away and gets notified that this is going on and it's sexual morality and even the non-Christians would find this repulsive. So what does sin do to the church? The first thing that sin does to the church is that sin attempts to blend the church with the world. When we let sin reign in this body, we're trying to blend the church and the world together, which means that we're no longer able to shine brightly as a holy people. We are to stand distinct from the world, that the church's values are different than the world's values, that we are to be a city on a hill. We're to be a, a light in a dark world. But when the church allows or entertains or permits sin, as this Corinthian church was, it begins to blend its identity with the world, and it shows the world Christianity is really no different than you. Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth, a real church like this. And Corinth was a city in the Roman Empire, and it was right on a body of water. It was a port. Lots of business and travelers were coming in. At one point during this first century, 100,000 people lived in Corinth. And one of the values of the Roman Empire was rampant sexuality. Back in the Roman days, there were brothels and there were slaves that men could have access to almost whenever they wanted. And for the most part, men could have as many affairs as they want, and it was not a problem. Homosexuality was rampant. It was a messy place. And what was even messier than all of that was that there were religious temples built for Greek goddesses where you could come in, pay money to sleep with a slave, and that was considered an act of worship to a fertility god. And yet here, Paul says, even the pagan sinners in the Roman Empire find this sin of incest in your church as detestable. So if this man who is sleeping with this stepmom was discovered by the Corinthian people, by the citizens of Corinth, they would think that the Christians really have nothing going on for them. There's no point of joining that church if they're no different than us or even worse than us. When sin is tolerated or encouraged or allowed by Christians, it tells the world that God and Christianity don't really have a problem with sin. It blends the church with the world, with the world in a way it's not supposed to be blended. That the sin of sexual immorality in the church of Corinth told the people of Corinth that their behavior is not actually offensive to God. And if there is no offense to God or no sin to God, then there is no gospel. So friends, are there sins that we as individual members or as the church altogether permit or allow or engage in that blends us with the world? Now, we're not to be people walking around judging the world as puritanical people saying, we're holier than you. 
but we are to be a holy people who actually live out our holiness and purity. And do we do that faithfully? Because if we don't, we're showing the world that Christianity has nothing to offer, no good news to this world. Because if we keep sinning, we act like sin is not really a big issue. Billy Joel has a famous lyric. He says, I would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. It's unfortunate when Christians live out this lyric that we think, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm missing out on the fun or the laughter of the world. So I'm going to give into that. I'm still saved. I'm good, but I'm going to engage in this a little bit. What that ends up doing is it's blending the world, the sinners and the saints in a way that it's not supposed to be. I think if we look at the landscape of Christianity in America, there are some sins that we as churches and we as Christians don't fight against or we allow to remain and settle in. And when we allow a little bit of sin to settle into us, we end up becoming controlled by that sin later on. Right? You know that expression, if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. It's with sin. Also, it's with, I realize it's with parenting. Um, I let my son last week stay up a little bit late last night to watch some football. So like, it's a, it's like a gift I'm giving to my son had, right? You can stay up, you know, another half hour and watch football while you're your, your sisters are asleep. Instead of him being grateful, sitting on the couch saying, thank you, dad, you're the best dad in the world. I love you so much. He sits down and says, can I have some popcorn? <laughs> and you know what he asked on Monday night? Can I stay up late and watch the hockey game? You know what he asked me on Tuesday night? Same thing, same thing, same thing. I gave him an inch. He takes a mile. That is parenting. That's my parenting book right there. But if we let a little something happen, at times it's going to want to take more. It's the same with sin. So I want to mention a few sins that I think as we look at all the landscape of Christianity, we allow to happen and it confuses the world. We are a wholly distinct people. So there are some sexual sins that we as Christians do not do a great job of fighting against. We might easily attack the sexual sins of the world, of the culture. We're worried about our kids growing up in this society, in this generation. We're worried about all this stuff, and that's fine to a degree. But why do we not also fight tenaciously against the sin of pornography in the churches and Christianity? Both men and women in the church almost look at pornography as much as men and women outside of the church, some some surveys say. We may scoff at the sexual exploits in the world, but do we fight this sin in our own lives and in our own homes? Right? It's the same with, with couples who live together before marriage and are sleeping together before marriage. Some Christians think as long as you're being faithful to just that one person, it doesn't matter if you're married together or not. But living together and sleeping together is a blessing and a benefit and result of marriage. Right? And if we don't care about some of these things like cohabitation or we don't care about the sin of pornography, we're proclaiming essentially that sin is not that big of a deal. We're blending with the world. But also there are some, I'm going to call them relational sins. Christians and churches are to be places that live out what Paul says in Galatians are the fruit of the Spirit. 
as in our attitudes, our posture should reflect Christ. Our words, our tone, our temperament should be Christian. But instead of us being self-controlled and hospitable and kind and peaceable people, Christians can be some of the harshest, most gossipy, jealous, quick to fight and quick to criticize people. And at times we cloak it by saying, I'm just speaking the truth. When in reality, you should say, I'm just speaking out of sin. There's a time to be bold. There's a time to be direct. But anger is never the right thing. Gossip or speaking poorly of someone or criticizing someone behind their back in an unfairly way is not the way of Christ, but it's the way of the world. Harshness and rough speech is the opposite of Christ. How was Christ described? He was described as being gentle and lowly. When we let these sins, these relational and temperamental sins invade our lives, we're blending with the world faith and the world with the church. We are to be wholly set apart and our kindness and our patience and our self-control and our restraint at times, our lack of gossip, our lack of anger should be what sets us apart from the world and makes us attractive to the world. But we allow sin like yeast to spread in our lives and our churches without cutting it out, and we begin to blend with the world. And sometimes we don't even know that we have it. Now, listen, we're all going to sin. We all will. But when we let it rain and we do nothing about it, it becomes a blending with the world. And Jesus didn't die for us, for us to keep sinning on more. He died so that sin has no reign over us, He has set us free. So, why would we return to it? Jesus said, why would a dog return to its vomit? Sin blends us with the world and the holiness of the church is diminished by it. What else does sin do to the church? Sin abuses the grace the church proclaims. When we go on sinning, we are letting sin abuse the grace that saved you and I. When we let sin be tolerated in the church, we are abusing the grace of Jesus. Look again at verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn and let him who has done this be removed from among you? Paul says, you know, you have a guy in your church who is sleeping with his stepmom, and yet he's still there, and you guys are doing nothing about it. And he calls them arrogant in verse 2. They are arrogant by letting this man remain in sin and remain part of their church. Only this one man performed this sin, and yet now the whole church is culpable because they are allowing it to keep happening because of their arrogance. How are they being arrogant? Not that they're bragging about this. But in verse 6, Paul calls them boast, said that they are boasting, they're full of pride despite this sin. Because the church believes that because they are saved by Jesus, because they've confessed their sin and they've believed in Jesus, that they don't have to deal with sin now. This is called abusing grace. They believe, as chapters 1 to 4 made clear, they think that they're a mature church because they have all these spiritual gifts. They have great preachers. They have guys who can speak the word of God with great rhetoric. 
They have all this worldly wisdom. They think they are good to go. And in reality, they are letting sin reign in their church. They think if God gave me abilities to teach or preach, if God gave us the abilities of speaking in tongues, then we are good to go. We don't need to fight sin. This is wrong and it's arrogance. It's thinking that if Jesus saves you, that you can have a free pass or a license to do whatever you want. In the 1930s, a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. It's not real, true biblical grace. It's saying, I believe Jesus, I walked an aisle, now let me do what I want, I'll see you in heaven. When we accept Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and yet remain tolerant of our sins, then we truly have not grasped grace. Because what grace is, yes, it is forgiveness, but grace is also power. It's a transformation of a person. We preach the gospel not just to get people out of hell. We preach the gospel so they can be forgiven and be made new and transformed in the likeness of Jesus, pursuing Jesus, fighting sin. In verse 7, Paul calls the church, he calls Christians the new lump, that we are no longer to be contaminated by yeast. We are the new bread, the new lump. We've been made new and right. So to abuse the grace of Jesus and keep on sinning is proof that you've never actually received the grace in the first place. Paul calls this church arrogant because they're presuming upon their own stature and spiritual gifts. Because I have a testimony, I get a free pass, when in reality, they're abusing the grace that they heard preached every Sunday. And in verse 11, Paul tells the church that it's absurd to accept a man who calls himself a Christian and yet is known by the world in his identity as a drunkard or a swindler, or is so identified with sexual immorality or greed. He's saying, if you are a Christian, you are to be holy like your nature. Not be known for your sin, but be known for your holiness. So when we, let, when we live our lives with sin ruling and controlling us, we're contrasting the very gospel that we as a church stand on. The gospel is not just an escape from hell. The gospel is a full life transformation where we follow Jesus. It's called costly discipleship. We are a holy people, so sin is to be taken seriously. So those are two things from this text that sin does to us as Christians and does to the church. But I want to finish the second point now, go to the second point, by saying what the church does to sin. How should the church respond to sin? The church recognizes the seriousness of sin. This passage gives us two things we can do. The first one, guys, is going to be bold and climactic and somewhat controversial for our, our American church. The second one is a much more um, subtle and yet helpful act. But the first, the first thing here that the church does to sin is the church removes sin through church discipline. The church removes sin through church discipline. Some of you have no idea maybe what church discipline is. It does not sound great to you. Some of you get a pit in your stomach when you hear that term because you've been through a church that has done this and there's a lot of hurt. But church discipline is biblical. Now, it's not a card to play every week. You don't pull that out as a trump card. 
No, it's a final step in persuading an individual to repent of their sin and look to Jesus. Has it been abused in churches? Absolutely it has been. But it is a biblical concept. Three times in this passage, Paul commands the church in Corinth to remove this man from their church. Three times. Verse 2, verse 7, verse 13. In verse 2, he's to be removed from among them. In verse 7, he is to be cleansed out. And in verse 13, he is to be purged from the church. Now, Paul is not making up a new rule here. Paul is actually applying what Jesus has said years earlier in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18. Right? Jesus has given the power and the authority to the church to remove someone from their church's membership if they're continuing in a way that's not of Christ. Right? This man's sin was so grievous. Right? This sin of incest, so grievous and serious, that, and he was unwilling to repent. So the right thing to do was for the church to remove him from their membership, which essentially means we're no longer claiming him as one of ours and our representatives. We're purging him. Church discipline is the correction of sin in a church. That's what it is, a simple definition. Church discipline is the correction of sin in a church. You can go read Matthew 18 later, and you see the kind of the typical, normal three steps for it, right? One individual approaches another individual and says, I see this in you, will you repent? If he says no, he brings a buddy with them, and two and one, hey, will you repent? We both see it. No. If he still doesn't repent, you bring it before the church. The church pursues this individual for, with kindness and patience and love and says, please repent in Christ. If he says no, then the church removes this man. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. The whole church is being called to remove this man because of his unrepentant, public, serious, observable sin. The sin must be visible, it must be serious, and the person must be unwilling to change for that person to be removed. So this is a process, okay? It's not like you're going to show up on church on a Sunday and you're going to find out you got kicked out. That's not how it works. This is a church in love with the Holy Spirit pursuing someone to change for the sake of Christ. And this man's sin became so egregious He's so unwilling to change that the only wise step is to remove this man. And Paul makes it clear in verse 4 that the whole church is to be involved in this. Right? This is not one pastor on a power trip. This is the whole church making this decision together. Right? So normally the elders of a church will, will bring a case of church discipline to the congregation for discussion and for the congregation to pursue this man with love. But why church discipline? Right? I mean, to some this seems harsh, isn't it? Didn't we have a sermon like two weeks ago about the church being a place to belong to? And now we're doing a sermon two weeks later saying, kick out this man. Well, there are two reasons why a church should do church discipline, and both are in this text. Firstly, someone should be removed from the church for unrepentant sin because that will protect the rest of the church. The church is a holy place. And sin is dangerous to a holy place. This man in 1 Corinthians 5 was removed because he's already influenced the conscience of the rest of the church. They're okay with him being there. Their consciences have been seared. And they don't want other church members to behave like him or put up with sin like him. And the church's reputation and identity is going in the wrong direction here. The church should be seen as holy, and it cannot be holy if the church is allowing or endorsing someone's sin. So church discipline protects the purity of the church. 
That's the first reason for discipline. We see that in verses 6 to 8 where, where Paul says, clean out the yeast and the leaven. Remove the leaven of malice and evil. That's the demand. Remove this evil from among you. Protect the rest of the, of the bread. But secondly, someone is removed from the church in hopes of restoring that individual back. We don't kick someone out to kick them out. Paul says you kick someone out so that maybe their hearts will wake up and they will come back and be accepted again. When a church removes an individual, their heart behind it is to awaken that person's soul to change so they can come back and worship as they did before. Look at verse 5 here. Paul says his purpose of removing that man is so that his spirit may be saved the day of the Lord. Do you see that? That by him being removed or purged out of the church, back into the realm of Satan, into the world, as it says in verse 5, that he may realize his sin and actually repent and come back. So when Jesus returns, this man will be back and forgiven. The point of church discipline is to restore someone back. That's the point. That by doing this discipline, the individual may repent and be welcomed back into the body. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines us out of love. Proper church discipline is a long process. It's not abrupt. It's not a power trip. It's done with patience and love to bring that person back into the fellowship of Jesus. It's to restore them. Now, this may seem shocking when I say this, uh, and you're probably not going to be quick to go sign up for our membership class, but one of our, our elders, Brent Tilton, often helps lead the membership classes. And one of the things he says is one of the benefits of you becoming a member at CBBC is that now you can have church discipline. Okay? It doesn't sound that fun. And hopefully, we're not planning on having any church discipline officially with anyone here, but the fact that we are so committed to your holiness and your purity in Christ's likeness that we would call you out for things is a gift. It's a gift sometimes we don't want to receive. But if the goal for being here is to be like Christ, to know that we have brothers and sisters who will pull us aside and say, hey, that's not in the conduct of the gospel. That is a gift. So three times here, Paul tells the church to remove this man for the sake of the purity of the church and to wake up this man's soul. So the church does discipline to sin. But the last thing I want to mention here in the sermon, one more thing the church does to sin to prioritize its own holiness is this. The church removes sin by prioritizing ongoing repentance. So this is for everybody here. All this text has been for everybody, but especially this last point. One of the ways that we at CVBC can take sin seriously and pursue holiness is by having a church culture of repentance. Now, if you're a Christian, you've already repented. But James tells us to confess our sins, to turn. Repentance is a turning, a turning from sin to turn to Jesus. So there's no neutrality here in our lives. We are either pursuing Jesus or we're not. So as a church, we need to be quick to confess our sin, to forgive one another, and to constantly be growing more and more in the likeness of Jesus. All right, but we at times are so much quicker and apt 
to call out the sin of the world outside of these walls before looking at ourselves. Paul touches on this in 9 to 13 of our text. It says, Corinth has been so quick to avoid all pagans who are practicing sexual immorality. They're, they're avoiding parts of the city because those are where the sinners are at. And Paul says, that's impossible. Then you can never leave your house if you're going to avoid sinners of the world. He says, actually, I told you to take this inside the church. This text is not about the world. It's about the church. He says, I want you to judge the inside of your church, not the outside. We are so good at blasting the world on social media as Christians. We are so good at complaining about what's going on in the world. And we should have a grief of the sin of the world. We should. We really should. But are we first looking at the sin within before we look at the sin without? He says, look at the sexual sin without you before you look at the sexual sin in Corinth. You judge the people in the marketplaces, but you don't judge the man in your body who's sinning. Before we call the world to repent, we must stop and think, have I repented of my sin? Look at verse 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges the outside, purge the evil person from among you. It's like that old lesson you teach your kids, right? When you point your finger, you have fingers pointing back at you. We can rant all day about the sin of the world or the country, but are we seeking to kill the sin within us? Church, I I pray that here at CBC, we can come to an agreement that this is a safe place to confess our sins and our failings. And this is a safe place where we will meet each other with the grace and the mercy. Right? We all have been saved from terrible sins, from the sins mentioned here in chapter 5 of sexual morality and greed and idolatry, anger, pride. We have all engaged in these things and this set up opposition to God. And yet what did Jesus do? He passed over our sins with mercy and with grace. And now we get to be that bread for other people. Maybe today you've, you've recognized that you are a sinner. And maybe your first step of repentance is coming to Jesus and being saved. To be honest with Jesus. To tell him your sin and look to the cross where he died for you. But will we trust that this church, this church of Jesus, will continue to offer the hand of grace and mercy and love when we we sin or when we slip up? Will we take that courageous step and kill that sin in our lives so that it doesn't lead us astray or impact our friendships here? Will we, with kindness and great patience and great love, seek those out in our church that we know are engaging in sin And call them out for it in kindness. Will we have a culture of repentance, of honesty, of confession, of grace, of mercy? Right? We do have small groups here. We have mentoring relationships for women. We have men's triads. These are environments where you can be honest and be treated with grace and not shame. So maybe men, women, maybe it's your next meetings, your next coffee visit with someone, the dear friend. Maybe you start off by saying to them, you and I, we are safe in the gospel. Let this be a place of honesty and a safe place where we can repent together. 
a church that is quick to repent and offer grace will be one of the most attractive things in a world that is so cutthroat. And the fact that we can feel safe enough to be weak and safe enough to be accepted is a beautiful blessing. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Church, that's what we get to do. So I want to finish by reading this quote from the man who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton. He, he was getting older. He was losing his memory. And he said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And church, we get to live out that message to one another to remind each other that no matter what sin we have that's great, we have a greater Savior in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we pray that this environment of safety becomes true here. We see so clearly the danger and the severity of sin. It's sort of overwhelming at times to us in this text. And yet you gave this to us for our instruction and for our hearts. I pray that we will find your mercy and your grace that much brighter today as we see the seriousness of sin. And yet we look around and see all these other sinners who've been saved by your grace. And we realize this is a safe and welcoming place in the grace and mercy of Jesus. We are your holy people because of your son, Jesus. Help us live that out in reality that we may spread this purity and this holiness and be a light to the world. For those of us who need to confess, let us confess. For those of us who need to apply mercy to others, let us apply mercy. Jesus, reign big in this body. In his name we pray. Amen.